Bill reminded me that you know, we, Don and I are also doing that study on Sunday night with Robert, and we're, we're reading and studying together, uh, loving, loving God. The name it loving God? Knowing, knowing God. God, knowing God, okay. <laughs> you can tell how much I'm getting out of it. <laughs> knowing God. And one of the interesting things, Don and I were talking about this, is that uh, he gave a quote in this week's homework. And, and, and let me just say this. I mean, this is not re- recruiting, but just it is a systematic theology of God. And uh, it, it's, it's college level, uh, seminary level. If you, but you're, you would enjoy it if you want to take the time, come on Sunday, if you're possible, if you can. And um, Robert then kind of explains that we go through, you read three chapters during the week, and then on Sunday night, you, you, all of you go, people comment on it, go through it together. But this week, in this week's reading, um, I'm going to get her name right. Maria Antoinette? Is that right, Donna? Where's Donna? Maria Antoinette? Okay, she tried to teach me how to say the last word. But, you know, we always, we always know about her quote that, you know, when, the, when they said to her, you know, she's a rich French woman, you know, ruler, and said the people have no bread, and she said, let them eat cake. You remember that? Yeah, everybody hears that quote, let them eat cake. So she's so far removed from reality, she thinks, just because people don't have any bread, well, surely they have cake, because she has cake all the time. So she said, just let them eat cake. I didn't understand that until I was an adult. <laughs> when you read that in high school, I thought, what's that mean? Let them eat cake. So <clears throat> I, I was thinking about cow cake back then. So, <clears throat> But uh, in, in this week's reading, they used another one of her quotes that I'd never heard before, and she just said, Nothing has any taste. And, and what that means, what she's meaning by that is she, she has so much and that nothing is appreciated. And I, Don and I were talking about when, when we were a young married couple, we, we didn't have the money to go out to eat. In fact, when we were in seminary, we didn't have the money to go out to eat. When we came here, we didn't have the money to go out to eat. So we, and so whenever you went out to eat, boy, did it taste good. You didn't have to do the dishes. It, boy, did it taste good. And today, when we go out to eat, we're a little picky about our food. You know, nothing has any taste. This is not like it used to be. That, you know, and so, isn't that interesting? And here's my application. We do the same thing with the Scripture. We, we have heard it. If you've been saved most of your life, we, we hear it, we read it, and it doesn't have any taste if we're not careful, if, if, we're, if we don't, before we do that, go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinful person and I, I need instruction. I, I need worship. Uh, I, I need illumination. And Corinthians, Paul tells us in Corinthians that we understand Scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals Scripture to us. You remember, now I know this has to do with Mark 5, but you remember when when. Peter, the Lord asked the disciples who he was, and Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you don't know this of yourself, but the Holy Spirit revealed this to you. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit that reveals truth to us, and we need to, we need to ask him to help us. We need to ask him, help, help me understand truth. Help me, help me not to be casual. Let me have taste. Let me taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm not making a message out of that. So, (laughs) 
Okay, Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, and the Lord Jesus is in his ministry, uh, probably the first half of his ministry, and he has already aggravated the the Pharisees, they are rejecting him, but the people haven't. The people see him as a miracle worker, and so they're following him. There are crowds of people who are following him. We saw in chapter 4, they're coming from all over Israel. They're coming from the northern part, southern part. Uh, they're coming all over Israel, following the Lord. And he's, at this time, up in the northern part, up in Galilee, in his home region. And you remember, he... Um, we just read in chapter 4 that uh, he had done a miracle, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and he had, um, and now he's doing some miracles and he's teaching people, and the Pharisees are rejecting him, and the people don't know who he is. The people know he's working miracles, but they don't know that he's the Christ. His disciples are kind of in the middle of that. His disciples have, are seeing what he's doing, but they don't understand that he is God in the flesh. They don't understand that this is incarnate God, that this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies because they looked for a Messiah to come, but that Messiah would be a ruling king when he came, and Jesus is not doing that. And so they're, they're people who are growing, and, and the Lord is training them, and part of what he's doing and the miracles that he does is he wants his disciples to know because he's going to turn over the ministry to them very shortly, and he wants them to know that he is worth dying for. And he wants us to know that, that he's worth dying for. Our faith in Christ is worth dying for. And if it's worth dying for, certainly it's worth living for. And so th- this, this is what is taking place. And today... Uh, we're going to see in chapter 5 that there's three people that he deals with miraculously. Uh, it have to do with demons, disease, and death. And, and so he's going to um, work in those areas. And the three people involved is an outcast, the, the maniac of Gadara, and a ceremonial unclean woman, the woman who had a blood flow that she couldn't staunch, and it made her ceremonially unclean, which means that she couldn't, she couldn't go and worship like other people because, she, uh, because of that disease. She had to isolate herself, basically. And then there was a child. And in, in their society, these three people had no standing. These three people were looked down upon. So the same principle is that Jesus goes to the poor, and he goes to the outcasts. He goes to the sinners. He goes to those people who are not trusting in what they have, but they're, they're, they're looking for hope, and that's the people that Jesus goes to, and his ministry has, has most effect in, in, in the lives of those type people. Edersheim wrote this. He said, quote, There are certain epochs in the history of the kingdom of God when the power of evil, standing out in sharpest contrast, challenges that overwhelming manifestation of the divine as such to crush it. And when you go in the Old Testament, you find that there are only limited times that there were miracles that happened. You, you go hundreds of years and there are no miracles. And then you come to the time of Elijah and Elisha. And you read about them in the Kings, in, in First, Second Kings. So Elijah and Elisha come on the scene and they do miracles. Now, other prophets have not been doing miracles, but they do miracles. And the reason 
is that the whole nation of Israel had turned to idolatry. And I don't mean that every single person had. There were big godly people. There's always a remnant in, in any society and, and, and that, that looked to God and looked to Christ. But the nation itself had turned to idolatry under the leadership of kings like Ahab and some of the northern kingdom as well. And so God allowed Elijah and Elisha back-to-back to do miraculous things to let the people know that God's speaking through them and God is speaking to them about repentance and about turning back to Him. And some people listened, and there would be a cycle of repentance and, and revival, and people would turn back to the Lord. So now this is another epoch in history when Christ comes. This is the hinge point of history when Christ comes. <clears throat> today, when we look at our calendar, today's what? The 26th of December, 2021, the year of our Lord. And the whole world recognizes that. It doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or Islam or you're a Hindu. Or this, this is the calendar. And, and so when Christ comes, it's the, it's the hinge point of history. It's an epoch. But also at this time, there was, there was great demonic activity. There was a curse of sin was rampant and, and having an effect on humanity. Humanity is still doing so today. See, sin, sin, disease and death and demonic activity all come because of the curse of sin. It comes because, and, and Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So Satan is at work. You remember when they, when they went to, out in the sea to cross the, uh, cross the Sea of Galilee, Satan saw an opportunity, and he tried to destroy them with a storm. And Satan has power to do that. And the Lord rebuked the, the wind and the weather and saved them. And now they come to the shore, and they're met with a man from the tombs. We're not going to read every verse, but we're going to summarize. They're met from a man of the tombs that was possessed by demons. And, um, and he had, had, had been so possessed long enough that the people had shunned him and they had chained him and, and he would break the chains and now he's living in the, in the tomb. So he's, he's an outcast. And so read with me in chapter 5. Then they came to the other side of the, of the sea to the country of the Gerardines and when he had come out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because they had often been bound, he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. You go in the book of Acts, and you find that there were seven sons of Siva who were going to cast out a demon, and that demon overpowered all seven of them. So demonic activity has a lot of physical power as well as a lot of spiritual Power And so this man would just break his chains. In verse 5, And always night and day was in the mountains, in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Interesting to me, there are a lot of young people today who cut themselves, and I'm not saying they're possessed by demons, but it's demonic influence. And, and, and so we shouldn't, and, and, and I have trouble with demonic influence. You have trouble with demonic influence. I, I keep thinking of things to tell you. Remember, you remember David and when he was serving as king, things were going well. And he told Joab, go and number the fighting men of Israel. And the Lord had forbidden that. The Lord said, I don't, I don't want you to trust in the strength of your chariots and horses. I want you to trust in me. Now, I'm just paraphrasing. But, but David 
in his pride, wanted to number the fighting men of Israel, say how powerful we are, how strong we are. And, and Joab had, had to go do it. He tried to talk David out of it, but he had to go do it. And, but he, he misnumbered them on purpose, but God still held, held David accountable for that. When you read, you read the account of that in Kings, and, and you find that David had these thoughts, but when you go to Chronicles and you read the same story in Chronicles, First and Second Kings is a historical account. First and Second Chronicles is a historical account with a spiritual application. And, and so that's just a generalization. But when you read it in Chronicles, you find that the Satan put those thoughts in David's head. Okay, now Satan, a demon can't possess a saved person today. Uh, <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, that the Lord has defeated principalities and powers and Satan can influence us, but he cannot possess us. And so, but we're influenced. So his influence is in the world, and it's powerful. It was powerful in this man, and, and they had influenced him and, and possessed him. And, and then <clears throat> when Jesus comes, verse 6, he saw Jesus from afar. He ran and worshiped him. He cried out with a loud voice, said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So this is not the man speaking. This is the demon speaking, probably the leader of the demons. And, and, and when, when we read this <clears throat> and in verse 7, when he says, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In their time, in, in the first century and previous to that, if you could name someone, you had some power over them. If you, if you name them, it means that I know you, I, I, I know something about you. And so it was a, their superstition was that it gave you power over them if you could name them and you, you, you could name something about their personality. And, and our name gives something, and, and especially in older times, your name gave something about your personality. In Bible times, it actually, it really does. It's why the Lord gave names to some of his disciples. He actually gave them a name identifying their personality. And, and so when this demon, sometimes when we see in the New Testament that they call Jesus by name, they're trying to exert their authority. And we don't see that just reading it, but you find, you find that when you read after people who know the history of the time and, uh, and people like Edersheim. And so it's really interesting that this demon tries to exhort his authority, but the Lord has none of that. And he says in verse 8, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And, and then Jesus said back to him, What is your name? And the man gave him legion because we are many. And so again, with a little bit of defense, saying we're unified, we're legion, we, we have some power. And, and they had no power because Jesus is their creator. He created them at one point in time. He didn't make them sin and lose their place, but he created them. And so we know the story then. He, verse 10, he begged him earnestly he would not send them out of the country. Now large herd of swine were feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out, entered the swine. There were about 2,000, and the herd ran violently down to the steep place into the sea and drowned it in the sea. Okay. When, when, when Jesus goes across the lake, you remember before that he was, there was such a crowd of people that were following him from out the country, they had no rest. 
And so Jesus tells them to go across the lake. When they go across the Sea of Galilee, they're coming to a Gentile region. Now, it was, in, it was part of the nation of Israel, but it was a Gentile region. Under the Greeks, it had been basically inhabited by Greek-speaking people. And so there, there would be some Jews there, but it's a Gentile region. So, so Jesus goes, and Isaiah says that he'll be allied unto the Gentile. So he, he goes for some relief, and a little R&R maybe, and he goes to this Gentile region. But instead of that, what he meets is a demonic and, and someone who is possessed by demons, and Satan's after him again. So Satan is, is, is after him again. And I want you to know but what Mark is teaching us, instead of us just dwelling on verse by verse what we see, what Mark is, what Mark is teaching us is that Jesus is teaching his disciples. You remember in chapter 3, that when the Pharisees looked for something that they could destroy Jesus with, the next thing they do when they see the miracle, instead of seeing that and repenting and giving God glory, they accuse Jesus of doing it by the power of Satan. You remember that? So they accuse Jesus. You're, you're doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus says to them that... you. You, you, you can't, a house divided can't stand, that Satan can't cast out Satan by the power. Now, here's his disciples, and they're listening to the Pharisees, and now I'm, I'm, I'm surmising from the text. They're listening to the Pharisees, and, and the, these had been their leaders. These had been when they would leave Galilee prior to Jesus, when they would leave Galilee and they would go to Jerusalem, to worship. They listened to the Pharisees. These were their spiritual leaders. And, 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 and these were the people who were guarding the tenets of Judaism for the nation and hope of the Messiah coming and they would then be a, a nation. And so the, the disciples are listening to them, but then they have this partial allegiance to Christ. They're following him. They've given up their livelihood and they're following him. And, the, and their spiritual leaders had called him a devil and that he's doing this work by the power of the devil. And you think about their culture, they had never seen a miracle of God before Jesus came. There had never been a leper healed. There had never been 5,000 fed. There had never been anyone given their sight back. There had never been anyone raised from the dead. They had never seen it, but they had seen demonic activity. So... Jesus goes, just as he does in John 4, and he, he goes through Samaria purposely to meet the Samaritan woman. Jesus has them go across the lake to the Gentile area where this demonic man is, and he is possessed of the devil. And Jesus had just told them, Satan cannot cast out Satan. And he's saying that you can't rob a strong man's house unless you bind the strong man. He wanted his disciples to know that what I'm doing is not by the power of Satan. Does that make it clear to you? So he goes and meets this man. Does he care about the man? Of course he does. Does he care, does he care about uh, what the people in Gadara is going to hear? Of course he does. And, and see, God is multifaceted. God is infinite. And, and he, he, he has this plan that in every facet of his plan, every facet of Jesus' plan, has, has ramifications for the whole world. 
You throw a pebble in the sea and the waves go out. Okay, so what Jesus does is that when he goes there, he's training his disciples that I am not doing this by the power of Satan. I am God in the flesh. You can't trust me. And so when they go there and they see this, and they see this man healed, and later when the people come, to check on their swine and what happened. They see him sitting clothed and in his right mind. They see him that this is a complete healing and restoration of this man's soul. And, and, and this man is going to take that back to his people, the Gentile region, and tell them of Christ and tell them of what Jesus did for him. Now, let's talk about the swine for just a moment. You know, a lot of people, when you first read this, and maybe you're reading commentary, they'll say that, Jesus allowed the demons to go into the swine because Jews are not supposed to raise swine because it's an unclean animal. But they were in Gentile territory, so that wasn't it. It's just that Jesus allowed them. They asked him not to send them back to the abyss. And they know that one day when when Christ gives the order, they're all going to be chained forever in hell, in the abyss of hell, which I think probably is a deeper part of hell than what people would be in. But, but here, they don't want to go. And so Jesus doesn't make them go, but he gives them release. He gives them actually permission to go into the swine. Not because he doesn't care about people's industry. or thing. It's just it's, it's an illustration for the people, I think. This is my opinion. An illustration for the people. Because if you have 2,000 swine who all of a sudden panic and go off a cliff and, 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 and go off a cliff and drown themselves in the sea... And the people come out and, and something has happened. Something significant has happened. And, and they come out to see the Lord. They come out to see what has happened. They don't know he's the Lord. They come out to see what has happened. And, and then when, when we read this in verse 15, or verse 14, those who fed the swine fled and they told it in the city and in the country, so they spread it abroad. And, and, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They knew this guy. They knew this guy, and they knew what he had been. They had had probably interactions with him enough that everybody knew about it. But when they see him clothed and in his right mind, standing in the presence, or sitting in the presence of Jesus, they are afraid. They know something significant has happened. This is an epoch in their lives. And they're afraid. And what are they afraid of? Are, are, they, are they afraid that Jesus is going to change their lifestyle? Or are they afraid of what he might do to them? Or are they afraid their sinfulness is going to be revealed? It is our nature. It was my nature before I was saved as an adult that I resisted the things of God. I would argue with you about the things of God because I would not humble myself. And yet, I had a fear of death and a fear of hell because I had enough understanding to know that from scripturally that there was a hell and there is a judgment. And I had a fear of that, but I tried to argue and reason my way out of that fear when any time religion was brought up. I was a salesman, spent a lot of time in my car, and back in those days, you know, back in those days, you had like three radio stations, and they'd have the gospel song of, of the week. Elvis would be 
sing out a gospel song. And I turned it off. I didn't want to hear a gospel song. It convicted me. I was afraid uh, and didn't know what I was afraid of exactly. There's a man, there's a poet in the 17th, end of the 17th, that wrote this. John Oxenham is his name. And the name of the poem is Rabbi Be Gone. <clears throat> and this is, what he, this is what he wrote. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get thee hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine, his soul. What care we for his soul? What good is that to us that thou hast made him hold since we have lost our swine? Christ went sadly. He had wrought for them a sign of love and hope and tenderness divine. They wanted swine. Christ stands outside your door and gently knocks. But if our gold or swine block the entrance, he forces no man's hand. He will depart and leave you to the treasures of your heart. The Bible teaches that as a Christian, we cannot be, again, I mentioned Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, we cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, but we, can be, we cannot be dwelt by a demon because we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. But we can be influenced and we can quench the working of the Holy Spirit. We can do what these people do. And, and our desires for the world and the flesh and whatever that entails, whether it's fame or it's, what, or, or it's material things or whatever that, that takes our eyes off the Lord and, and becomes paramount in our lives, we will be quenching the Holy Spirit. We quench the work of the Spirit. It means that we don't listen to the voice of God. Okay. This man wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus sends him to his own people. I think we read that. Um, no, we haven't. But verse 16, they asked Jesus to depart. Verse 17, they begin... Uh, then they began to plead with him to depart from the region. Verse 18, when he had gotten to the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. Decapolis is, the word means there are ten cities. There are ten cities in this area on the eastern side of Galilee, up and down and, and over to the east of that. And this, they're Gentile in origin, and this man goes, and Jesus is going to come back in his ministry. I don't remember whether you get to that mark or whether it's within the gospel. He's going to come back, and the people are going to receive him. They're, they're going to be, multitudes are saved at that point in time, and, and they're going to receive him gladly because of this man's testimony. And you know, it's interesting the Lord wants us to do the same thing. The Lord wants us to testify to grace. We testify in one way by being baptized. We testify by taking the Lord's Supper. We testify by coming this morning. Your neighbors know you go to church. And they may not know where you go, but they know you go. We, we testify by saying grace over our meal. We, we testify by giving. We testify by caring. We, we testify... And the Lord wants us to testify. We see that uh, over and over. And so 
I think his disciples learned Jesus is not doing this by the power of the devil, but he is the Son of God. He has power over the devil and over many devils. So now he comes back across the lake. So they ask him to depart. In verse 21, now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, now he's back in the the side of Galilee, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed and she will live. The ruler of the synagogue would be like the mayor of the city, uh, in, in a sense, about as close as we could get. He was an important person. And, and maybe Jesus had spoken in his synagogue early on, probably had. But he had heard what Jesus did. And, and even though the Pharisees and the scribes were against Jesus, he had this need that he couldn't meet himself. Probably his daughter had gotten sick suddenly and had progressed in the disease or whatever it was quickly, or he would have come earlier when Jesus was there. But, but now he realizes she's going to die. Unless I do something, she's going to die. And so he, in a sense, and even with his position, even which it was a spiritual position as well as a social position, He decides he needs help, and he believes Jesus can help him. And this is the beginning and the progress of faith. And and it doesn't matter what social standing you are, it's the same for everyone. And so Jesus is going to go with him. He comes and makes this request, and Jesus is going to go with him. And on the way, they meet the woman with the issue of blood. So let's read that. Um. Verse 24, Jesus went with him, multitude followed, thronged him. Thronged him means pressed, you're pressed. They're, 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 they're up again, they're all trying to get something from Jesus. It's like, you see a celebrity that comes out and all the, all the media is around them and they're pressing and they're having to shove their way through them. And so this, this is what that, word, what that word means, they thronged him. Now a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians... She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. I suffered many things, and, and we don't really know all that that means. It, means. it doesn't mean they tormented her. It means that they kept trying remedies. When, when you read the Talmud, and I don't read the Talmud, but you read about people who read <laughs> it. The Talmud is a Jewish writing. Uh, it's a Jewish writing about the law and about all the, all the little intricacies, the facets of the law, and so they gave... They gave prescriptions for things. And uh, you remember when Peter's mother-in-law, Peter's mother, mother-in-law, mother-in-law had a fever, and, and there was a, a way to heal a fever. It was like a three-day process. Well, there was a way to heal the flow of blood. And so they had all these remedies, and she spent her money and went to all this trouble, and nothing ever worked. And nothing ever worked, and you can imagine that now she probably is anemic and maybe even weak because she's anemic because she keeps losing blood, and she's ceremonially unclean, and her life is in shambles because you have no hope. You think, okay, this is now my life until I die. And sometimes 
we experience that. We go through that with people we love. We go through that with people we know about, and they're part of our families. And you think, there is no hope. There is no hope. They've got their lives in such a place, or circumstances have got their lives in such a place, and that there is no hope. And it happens to some of our elderly in our church and some of our elderly in our families, and, and we want to minister to them, but there's nothing that we can do to fix the problem. We can just minister to them in their problem. That's life, isn't it? And, and it's happening to us today. It's happening to you today. And that's just life. We deal with it. But, but she has the hope of Christ. And so she wants to go to Christ. And, and so she, she's heard about him. And, and so verse 27, she heard about Jesus. When she heard he'd come back again, she came, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, verse 28, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Now this is really interesting. She thought, if I just touched his clothes, had other people just touched his clothes, been made well, Jesus had healed probably by this point, I'm going to say thousands of people. And that's why people were flocking to him. Because in their day, there were no cures for anything, basically. There were no penicillin, there were no antibiotics, there were just, there, there were just these, these uh, super, uh, superstitious remedies for the most part, maybe some herbal things and things that actually helped. But there was no cure for, for hardly anything. And, and so Jesus healing these thousands of people had great impact in their nation. When Jesus dies, and we'll see that in Mark at some point in time, if I live long enough, and, but, we, but when Jesus dies, a lot of these maybe same people cried out, crucify him, crucify him, because they got caught up in the moment. But after he, after he was resurrected and the disciples began to preach, there were hundreds of thousands of people who got saved throughout Israel. Hundreds of thousands, if not more. And, and that's what you read in Acts chapter 2. I mean, there are multitudes and then multitudes and multitudes. So there, there are thousands, there are tens of thousands, I should say. Maybe not hundreds of thousands, but tens of thousands to, to even maybe a hundred thousand. People just, because they had heard him, they had seen him. And when they understood what his death, burial, and resurrection meant, they believed. Because they were exposed to him. They didn't have the communication we have today, but they were exposed to him through these miraculous things that he did. So it was very, very significant in their lifestyle. I don't know about you. You know, we, you're going down the street and there's a wreck. And we look. You say people go to rodeos because they like the blood and guts. <laughs> I don't know if that's true anymore. I, I don't know. But, we, you know, we look. It's interesting. We want to know, okay, anybody get hurt? Anybody die? So watch the news that night. And say, you know, sometimes you don't think, anybody I know? You know, and, you know, so you, we just, you know, we're curious about these little things that happen in our life. I, I talk about mass shootings, but I don't, you know, I don't want to be crude. And I don't want to, and I don't want to minimize people who are in wrecks or mass shootings or anything. But see, we're people who are moved by the, the, the something that's out of the ordinary in our life. We're moved by that. We remember that. We, it's significant to us to, for a moment anyway. And, and, and imprint something on our memory through the emotional experience. And so here, Jesus doing these healings, 
it's hard for us to understand the impact that it had uh, upon the nation. And she thought, if I could just touch his cloak, I believe that he would heal me. And she comes in the press and touches his clothes. She gets close enough to touch his clothes or touch him. Spurgeon said that the, the, the multitude touches and presses, but faith touches. The multitude presses, faith touches. So it's really interesting that Jesus knew that power had gone out of him. I think he knew who she was. I think in, I believe in his omnipotence. You know, he, he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. The Bible says he knows all men, uh, which means mankind. He knows the thoughts and intents of your heart. The Holy Spirit knows that today. Isn't that kind of chilling to you? The Holy Spirit knows the thoughts and intents of my heart today, now, and every day, and he knows yours. And, and, and so I think the Lord knew that she was going to come and she was going to touch him. I, 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 I just happened to, to think that. But it doesn't really matter. Either way, he knew when power went out of him and, and the power to heal. And it, it speaks to us of the, it speaks to us of the, uh, the attribute of the Lord. He is, he is all-knowing. He is omnipotent. He knows He's all-powerful. He's omniscient is the word, all-knowing. And, and, he, and he knows this goes out of him. And let's, what happened to the woman in verse 29? Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. Evidently, evidently she felt it in her body is what it says. So evidently she had such a physical sensation and maybe even a revitalization of her anemia or whatever the, the blood loss was causing her to feel and experience that she knew she was healed. And so Jesus says, who touched me? And his disciples said, are you crazy? All these people are pressing upon you and you're saying, who touched me? They're all touched you. You know, maybe a hundred touched you. And, but, but, and, and why did he do that? Why did he make this woman come forth publicly and say, I touched you. I, I touched you and I needed healing. I have this infirmity, and I needed healing, so I touched you. Why did he do that? Why does he say in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. Why does he want that from us? He knows our heart. And he wants it for the same reason he called this woman to account. For one of the reasons, I think, is he wanted her to know. He wanted her to know that you, your faith has saved you. It's what he's going to say to her. I want to summarize because we're running out of time. But he wants her to know your faith has saved you. Today, there are people who trust in things. There are people who trust in things. And he didn't want her to begin to tell her neighbors and her friends, that the Lord's robe healed me. It wasn't the Lord's robe that healed her. It was, it was her faith in Christ himself that healed her. That's what he said at the end of this. You, you remember Nehushtan? You remember when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they were rebelling against the Lord and the Lord sent serpents among them to bite them and they would die. They poisoned them and they, would, they began to die. And, and, and thousands of them were dying 
And Moses interceded, and the Lord said, Make a bronze serpent, and bronze has a symbol of repentance, and put it on the pole, and anyone who will look at the serpent will be healed. So it has, there is judgment. Bronze has to do with judgment. So if people would just look, all they had to do was just look. They had to have, when Moses said, look at the serpent, they had to have enough faith to say, crazy as that sounds, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey the word of God, which was the word of God. And when they looked, they were healed. And it was symbolic that Christ is going to be on the cross one day, and he's going to come off, and, he's going to be, and Christ is going to be our healing. But you go to 1 Kings, and so hundreds of years later, they find the serpent, and people are worshiping it. Jewish people are worshiping it. It's called Nehustan. I don't know, the Jewish word means, you know, the bronze thing. So they're worshiping the bronze thing. And this is what Christ wanted that woman to know. The, my robe did not heal you. Your method did not heal you. Your symbols did not heal you. I healed you. Your faith in me healed you. And you know, it's true for us today, is that we, we need to, I, I'm, not, I'm not blessed because I come to church. I'm blessed because Christ died on my behalf. I'm not blessed because I'm faithful. It's just the opposite. I'm faithful because I'm blessed and I'm saved. I, I'm not blessed because I give a certain amount of money. I'm blessed. I can do that. Be, I do that because I'm saved. Uh, I, you know, you understand, but we, our, our nature is such that we focus on the tangible instead of the spiritual. We, we focus on what we can touch and feel and, and, and manipulate instead of by faith trusting in Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's our nature. It's, it's, our, it's our default. Our, our default is to think, that I have to do something. I have to be something. I have to, I, I, I have to feel something. You're not saved by your feeling. You, your, your feeling follows the fact that you're saved. I feel, I, I feel forgiven most of the time. But, but whether I feel it or not, I'm forgiven. Because the Word of God says so. It's the Word of God that says so. Let me give you another instruction. I, I've always wanted to go to Israel, and, and probably you do too. I don't know. Any of you ever been to Israel? Okay, we're going one day when Christ comes. We're going. You know, we're going to live there. We're going to live there in the, in the heavenly Jerusalem, and we'll get to see it then. And I don't I want to be very careful what I say, especially if some of you had been. I want to be very careful what I say. I've had people over the years tell me, oh, your faith will never be the same when you go to Israel. And I always wanted to say, Really, is your faith in Israel, your faith in Jerusalem, your faith's in the Word of God, your faith's in Christ. Now, I might have more knowledge of understanding the life of Christ if I saw where he walked. I might have more knowledge, but my faith is not in knowledge of physical things. My faith is in Christ. But see, that's our nature. That's our default nature. When Robert leads us in music in a few minutes, our nature is that if I like that song, I feel more spiritual. I feel the moving of the Holy Spirit if I like that song. And, 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 and the Lord wants us to sing. We should do that. But if I don't like the song or I don't like the beat, I don't feel that. You understand? And See, it has nothing to do with that. 
we should be, whether we like things or we should just say, Lord, I'm so grateful you saved me. You saved me and whatever you want to do with me, I mean, whatever you want to, however you put me, I, my, my faith is not dependent upon what the church does. My faith is not dependent upon how I feel. My faith is dependent upon the death, burial, resurrection of my Savior. And you know what? We would live in a, in a more steady, joyful attitude and spirit. Our taste would return, to quote Marie Antoinette. Our taste would return. Well, pray with me, and we'll go listen to Robert lead us, okay? Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you for our time together this morning. And Lord, thank you that just as you healed these people who were outcast and had no standing in their community, Lord, uh, we are like that, and you healed us by faith in you, and we're grateful. And we want to we live gratefully before you. Lord, we want to taste and see that the Lord is good in all of our life, all of our, all of our, our response to you. So we pray and ask you to help us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Lord bless you. See you in church.